It's Monday, December 11th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You got to hand it to Bernie Sanders for all his totally progressive positions. He rarely lapses into jargony blandishments. He's not about holding room for unpacking the decentering of cisgenderism. He's for sticking it to millionaires and billionaires. We get it. I think it's because he has an excellent bullshit detector. Remember just a couple weeks ago, he got in the middle of Senator Mark Wayne Mullen and that Teamster official. They were about to fight and he was like, no, 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 you're a senator. No bullshit. When it came to the question as asked on CBS's Face the Nation, why don't you, like others, favor a ceasefire in Gaza? He sensed the bullshit behind the proposal. Wait, he said, with Hamas? That's who you're talking about? It won't work. In terms of a permanent ceasefire, I don't know how you could have a permanent ceasefire with Hamas, who has said before October 7th and after October 7th that they want to destroy Israel. They want a permanent war. I don't know how you have a permanent ceasefire with an attitude like that. Now, with that attitude, you don't. (laughs) But he's absolutely right. And he also said that a ceasefire, which was actually abided to by Hamas, that included the release of hostages as proof that they were abiding by it. And then you get some refugee aid in there. That's all sensible. But letting Hamas get in a room reasoning with those guys, not going to work. And I'm sure he apologizes to members of the squad, but a ceasefire with Hamas? No mas! On the show today, a disastrous hearing in front of Congress leads to a worse SNL sketch. But first, this holiday season, give the gift of gist. Yes, if you or someone in your life doesn't want to hear all the commercials or bizarrely wants to hear more of me in extended interviews, you can give that as a gift. Pesca Plus, ad-free subscriptions. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com slash gifts. So this way you won't have a recurring charge. You give someone six months, a year of the gist, and that is your gift to them. In fact, you know what? I like you. You could take an additional 11% off. Everyone gives 10. I'm giving 11. If you use the code Belgium at checkout, capital B-E, I'm not going to tell you how to spell it. You're going to have to spell Belgium correctly with a capital B to get your 11% off. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com slash gifts. But first, in August 2019, 23-year-old Elijah McLean was killed while walking home from a convenience store in Aurora, Colorado. Elijah was put in a hold and then later given ketamine to, the intent was, sedate him. But he was given too much of that drug, which led to his death. It took a while, but the case was reopened in the wake of the protests after the murder of George Floyd. Allison Borden is an editor from Colorado Public Radio, has been following the case since it's gone to court. She gives an inside look into the case, the trial, and explains where we are now that two paramedics are on trial after the trial of three police officers. Allison Borden up next. In August of 2019, a 23-year-old in Aurora, Colorado, Elijah McLean, was stopped by the police. There was some report of him acting suspiciously. Pretty soon, a number of police personnel were confronting him, putting their hands on him. 
and he quite tragically told them, I'm an introvert and I'm different. He was subdued. He was put in a chokehold. EMT officers came and injected him with ketamine, as was in general the protocol, and Elijah McClain died. That was 2019. No charges were brought. Then, of course, after George Floyd in the summer of 2020 happened, there was a new push to look into some of these cases. Elijah McClain's mother always was talking about her son's death, wanting attention, wanting reinvestigation, and they got it. And now... In Colorado, we are seeing the trials of five of the EMT officers and police officers who were there on the scene and charged to different degrees in the death of Elijah McClain. Some of these trials have concluded. One of the two EMT officers is occurring as we speak. And covering this is Allison Borden. She's the editor for Health, Justice, and Education Issues with Colorado Public Radio. Allison, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. So bring us up to speed, if you would, on what the adjudications have been on the three police officers who've already stood trial. So they've been split up into two different trials, one uh, with two officers who were the backup who showed up a couple of seconds after the first officer. And then the first officer was tried independently from those two other officers. And um, the two officers trial. One was convicted of the lesser charge of criminally negligent homicide. They were charged with reckless manslaughter and assault, and he got the um, lesser charge. Mm -hmm. And the other one was found not guilty. Um, And then the individual officer, the first one who arrived at the scene, he's also the officer who uh, performed the carotid hold, which is actually not a choke hold, by the that way. That is true. I missed it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, yeah. uh, it cuts, Law enforcement uh, would object to that. It's more... Well, uh, we've, we've been um, trying very hard to be very specific about the language there, and the carotid is a, a cut of the blood rather than oxygen, and we think it was performed successfully in this case. But anyway, he was the one that that McLean did pass out, but there was no evidence that he was deprived of oxygen to his brain. Correct. Uh, Not by the hold. Um, But it did lead to his uh, vomiting and aspirating some of that vomit. So it did obviously make an effect with his breathing. Right, However, right. McLean was wearing a mask and this wasn't, a, you know, August 2019. It was not a mask because of COVID. Why was he wearing a mask? You know, uh, people, people who knew him said he was often cold. Okay. And he was, I mean, he was wearing a jacket and it was a woolen ski mask. It wasn't like, I mean, it, it, you know, people think of face mask in the pandemic era this was a full you know head mask but people said he would wear it because he just got cold often and um you know he wasn't doing anything suspicious even the convenience store owner who went on trial said you know the defense was like it was suspicious right that he was wearing a mask and she was like no Mm -hmm. but it 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 did prompt a 17-year-old who we've not been able to talk to to call 911 and say there's a suspicious guy in a mask walking 
Anyway, so Nathan Woodyard was the first officer on the scene. He performed the carotid hold, and he is also he was also found not guilty. Okay, so the three officers, we have two not guilties and one uh, Randy Redima on the least uh, and the charge that carried the least penalty was found guilty. This might strike one as a compromise verdict. Have you or anyone else talked to the jurors and heard their understanding of why they made those decisions or when a decision like this is made, then if you can't talk to the jurors, you just infer from the closing arguments that they believe the defense's argument over the prosecution's argument. So what do we know about the jurors' decision? So we haven't been able to talk to the jurors. The judge, since there are three consecutive trials that are very similar using a lot of the same evidence, the judge hasn't released any information uh, about the jurors to us, but we do expect to hear from them at the conclusion of this last trial. Oh, I see. So everyone is uh, waiting. Is there officially a gag order on them? Or at least they're anonymized right now. There's not officially a gag order, but I can tell you we've been uh, haranguing the PIO for that information. The the other thing, too, is that uh, these these juries have been largely white. Mm -hmm. Um, There has been on... uh, In the Nathan Woodyard case, there was one black person... um, and just very few people of color for this, which uh, strikes us. I mean, we can um, we can only since we don't have the demographics, it's just to our appearance, and we don't want to identify anyone who may not identify as yes, such. Right. But from appearance, the juries have been largely white. And what are the demographics of? It's an Aurora jury pool, city of Aurora. Well, uh, Aurora is split by two counties, Mm -hmm. so it was in Adams County, um, and Adams County is actually one of our largest Latino populations in the metro area. Um, It's almost 40% Latino in that that county. But (laughs) non-citizens don't serve. I'm not making assumptions, but... Oh, that's true. That's true. Uh, But even, um, even, you know... There's been a long-standing Latino community there because yeah. Colorado is one of those places that the border crossed. Yes. Uh, do you know the race of the person who called the police about him being suspicious? Well, I can make a guess because his name was um, of Latino descent. Yeah. Okay, so we're not quite sure why the jurors made their decision, but I know you've talked to legal experts And like I said, the inference of what arguments carried the day, what can you report to us? What was the difference between this one officer and the other two? Well, so the biggest evidence uh, the state has played and the defense has played is that they have most of what went on on tape, Mm -hmm. where the police have body-worn cameras, um, and you can see from the moment they had hands on Elijah McClain, there was a, there's a part of the video that's dark because the camera got knocked off. But you can see uh, the one officer who, Randy Rodima, who did get convicted, is there with Elijah McClain for the entire, t- for the entire time and also restraining him. Um, uh, and was the person who talked to the paramedics to, and telling them, he had uh, he had superhuman strength, um, leading the paramedics to believe that he had the so-called excited delirium. He's the one that's restraining. He's the one that is telling his supervisor, "Oh, he can breathe. He can breathe." 
when in actuality, and you can actually hear it on the tape of Elijah McClain saying, I can't breathe. He said, I can't breathe something like seven times to these officers. And they continued to restrain him. Um, there's been a lot of testimony about what the recovery position is for someone who has give, been given the carotid hold and you're supposed to put him on his sides. And Randy Rodima continued to hold him prone, face to the ground. And I, I mean, I think the jury relied heavily on some of those tapes. We know in that trial they asked, um, there is raw tape. The state also created a version where because there were something like 10 person, 10 cops on the scene at yeah. a, any given point, and they all have body cameras. So they created like a master video where they took all the cameras and synced them together to create one large video where you can see everything. Um, that was not, a, that was not shown in the, um, and the jury actually requested, requested it. Cause it is, I mean, cop footage is sometimes hard to, see it's yes, dark it's night discern different you know the, right. the cops aren't there to record footage they're there to do their job and correct. the camera is affixed wherever it's affixed beforehand yeah correct so um the judge denied them to see this extended version but it, it sounds to me like they like they really relied on the tapes and having having seen these tapes it's it does seem like Randy Rodima in particular is um, leading the scene and saying things like he can breathe, he can breathe, when in fact he was, his medical condition was worsening. So at that trial, uh, or at those trials of the police officers, there was some evidence that seems important, and it was the forensic pathologist, Stephen Cena, did report, it is my opinion that he, McLean, likely would have recovered had he not received this injection, referring to ketamine. As a result, I believe this tragic fatality is a result of ketamine toxicity. We'll get to some of the context of that, but once that is the official forensic pathologist's report, uh, you could certainly, the defense of the police officers highlighted that. You could see that going pretty far to convince a jury about who is ultimately responsible. Absolutely. And, and the Stephen Cena is an interesting character, and that's because he he's the forensic pathologist that Adams County contracts with to do their autopsies. Um, and, well, when he, when he did Elijah McLean's autopsy in 2019, he didn't... He says he doesn't. He didn't have all of the police video, but still filed an autopsy that said cause and manner of death are, are undetermined, and that led the DA to say we can't do charges. We're not going to charge anyone. But when the investigation opened um, in 2020 or mm -hmm. 2021. Um, he was able to see more of the cop videos that they released and actually ch changed the autopsy, which was pretty unprecedented. He changed it to um, the complications of the administration of ketamine following forcible restraint. Right. So ketamine, yes, is what killed him. However... What the state has been trying to say, or tried to say with the cops' um, trials, was that he could have survived this ketamine had he not already been in the medical distress of aspirating 
not being able to breathe, being held, being restrained, that he was already in some really just like he was in medical distress yeah even before the ketamine was involved so the state tried to sort of break apart that um but obviously somewhat unsessfully right in uh two-thirds of the cases totally and uh achieving only the lesser conviction in one of the cases right i want to get to the question of how much coherence there has to be within all these trials it seems like you can interpret it well you can interpret uh, the state as having shifting theories of uh, who's ultimately responsible for this incident and applying them to different degrees when different people are on trial. But I do want to get to the EMT trial first because I don't think we've established this and listeners might be confused. So number one, injecting ketamine is the procedure, is the protocol. Was, was. Was the uh, protocol. Yeah. The question is, and tell me if I'm wrong, it's entirely a question of how much ketamine was injected. Is that right? I mean, it's not entire it's not entirely the question, but they did give an extra large uh some people call overdose of ketamine. Right. So Elijah McLean weighed around 140 pounds. They gave a ketamine dose appropriate for someone who weighed over 220 pounds. The uh, EMTs testified there are three doses, three, four, and 500 milligrams, uh, small, medium, and large, I think the guy testified under oath. And they gave the largest one, which is inappropriate to uh, McLean's body weight, though possibly, and this will be decided at trial, perhaps not how he was acting, maybe that would warrant a larger dose. You know, this this trial right now is really interesting. Um, <laughs> right now it's delayed because some jurors got COVID. Oh, great. So we're off uh, the trial until Monday, possibly longer. But um, that's such a story. We'll probably air this Monday, so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, we're expecting the trial to be continued on Monday, but mm-hmm. who knows. But... Um, one, I will address, it is really interesting to hear the state sort of move their, uh, sorry, I hit the microphone, moved their their argument, um, because in the cops, they're saying it wasn't just the ketamine, it was these restraints that they weren't taking care of him, they didn't have control of the scene, and now, as the paramedics, and there is a difference between paramedics and EMTs, paramedics are slightly higher trained than EMTs are, and these were paramedics. Um, now that they're on trial, the state is reverting back to as the ketamine. It was the ketamine. It was the ketamine. Same prosecutors in some cases. Uh, yeah, there's been one one person who has been at every trial from the AG's office, Jason Slathhauber, and he's been one of the lead attorneys on all three cases. So I mean, I'll ask you this: uh, two ways to look at this. Maybe a million ways to look at this, but two main ways are something like an injustice was done to this uh, poor kid, Elijah McLean, who was, we haven't even gotten into his biography, but he, I mean, he learned to play the violin and would play it for stray cats because they were lonely. Like a very, very sensitive young man who wasn't doing anything wrong and wasn't armed and was killed by police. It was a homicide. Well, you can hear it in the videos too. He's saying, I'm different. Yeah. I'm a vegetarian. I don't even kill flies. And you can hear in the video of him pleading and the cops just not listening at all. Right. So it's a tragedy. The question of the question is, is it a crime? One side of that argument would say, 
what the lessons of George Floyd thrust upon us or gave us the impetus to do was to go back and reassess an injustice such as what was done with, to Elijah McClain and apply what we know now standards of justice so that the people who did this to him would be held to account. The other side might say something like, this was a political process. It was spurred along by momentum or excitement during the protests of George Floyd and five uh, police or medical personnel were unfairly tried and their rights were put in jeopardy because of what was essentially uh, a, a politically driven decision to try to find someone to hold for account for this tragedy that was not a crime. Now, my only question to you is, are those two fair framings of the both sides? Like if I've gotten anything wrong or why one of those framings maybe leaves out important details, tell me. I mean, I think the framing is right, but I think uh, the state and some other people might say that you're putting too much importance on the political side of it. That certainly the reason that these charges came were a product of people knowing his name and knowing the injustice that had happened, but that there's still, that the DA just was mis was mistaken, basically. That those charges should have come no matter what. Right, right. It's righting a wrong, and once the DA makes an initial wrong, it's very hard it to was, go back. Yeah, and, and, it, and it took yeah. a political action, our, our governor appointing the AG. And, and some cops have been, um, or cop groups have been very, some of the police department um, unions have been very vocal about saying, hey, you know, we were cleared of this. It was right. appropriate use of force. He was a suspicious person. He fought back there's an instance where one of the cops said he grabbed your gun which we cannot confirm well one of the cops said that but we can't confirm that he did grab correct the gun one of the cops sure said which, gun, which and that, cop was there was so much confusion about that yeah well it was randy rodima who said hey he got your gun um and i don't know if that played into his conviction also yeah. but you know that's a question for the jury but i think think at least the, for the state's part they're downplaying a lot of the politics of it that it is cops and paramedics who were out trying to do their job and did it so badly that someone got killed Allison Borden has been covering the Elijah McLean case the trials of different officers and personnel over the death of Elijah McLean for Colorado Public Radio where she is an editor on health justice and education issues. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you. And now the spiel. When three top university presidents flubbed their pass-fail course in genocide, a lot of people wondered, how could they get that so wrong? Well, I am here to tell you. I'll also tell you why the lesson taught these university presidents is whatever you want them to be, why SNL couldn't even make the right joke about them, and how firing one, maybe two, won't degrade the cause of free speech or advance the cause of tolerance. That is a big assignment. I've laid out the syllabus in quite a detailed fashion. So let's start with a clip. You probably heard a version of this. Here is a cut-down version, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik's questioning of the president's. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's 
code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? If targeted at individuals not making public statements. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes, it is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. Context dependent. I mean, are we going by the word genocide, meaning slaughter of a race or ethnicity, or genocide, the killing of people named Gino? Seahawks quarterback Gino Smith, watch out. Or maybe you make half a dozen Gino's pizza rolls. You absolutely murder them. That's what I'm saying, dog. No, dog does not see what you're saying. The dog says three individuals who are at least titularly the most learned people in the land displaying the kind of moral obtuseness we heard, the moral obtuseness of a Dilbert cartoonist or former Kardashian spouse is not good. No shade on you, Lamar Odom. So with all that Michigas, which according to Amnesty International is a common precondition for genocide, what the hell were these three women thinking? Luckily, I am here to explain as a man, let us call it man explaining. The presidents were worried about Stefanik equating calls to intifada, which is prevalent in the rhetoric on college campuses, or the chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which is also ubiquitous, tying that to genocide. The logical chain would be, and this is what they were worried about, you say you allow these chants, but you just claimed you're against calls for genocide, but these chants are genocidal. Aren't you being inconsistent or worse? And then there'd be back and forth, and the memes would all be about the president's trying to hastily explain why intifada is not a call for genocide. You know, it means uprising. It means shaking off. Yes. So cleverly, to get around the question, if intifada equals genocide, and you say genocide bad, the presidents decided not to say that genocide was bad. Aha, your premise is denied. And soon they will be denied further paychecks. UPenn President Liz McGill specifically, she did issue a video apology slash explanation. I want to be clear. A call for genocide of Jewish people is threatening. Deeply so. It is intentionally meant to terrify a people who have been subjected to pogroms and hatred for centuries and were the victims of mass genocide in the Holocaust. In my view, it would be harassment or intimidation. But McGill could not slow talk her way out of this one. Notice, too, how she was going with the lawyerly, in my view, you heard that point, in my view, it would be harassment or intimidation. This is often how executives under fire testify, couching statements of fact as personal opinion. The cigarette executives did this. By the way, had any president during the original hearing had just said, you know, If someone stands up on the quad and says, I want to kill the Jews or go to the steps of the library and says death to Jews or kill the Jews, they would violate the code of conduct and I would actually pursue criminal charges. They'd have been fine. 
But it was the call for genocide phrasing that got the university professors and presidents so twisted. Also a bit confused as to where the absurdities of this incident lay was Saturday Night Live. In their cold open, they chose the hearing as fodder for comedy, but the object of their ridicule was off. Would you say that you are anti, 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 anti-Semitic? I'm sorry, can you tell me how many antis that was? <laughs> I will not. You're asking us questions that seem very unfair. Oh, <laughs> thank you. That was Chloe Troost playing Elise Stefanik. The New York Post and The Wrap reported that former cast member Cecily Strong played Stefanik in the dress rehearsal but pulled out before airtime, citing discomfort with the role. They weren't sure why. Maybe it was that the sketch wasn't funny, but why wasn't it funny? Could it be that the person they were making fun of at SNL was Stefanik and not the president's? I've seen about 50 Saturday Night Live congressional sketches. Sometimes the members of Congress are mocked and sometimes the witnesses are mocked. Here is a sketch lampooning the all-male Senate Judiciary Panel grilling Clarence Thomas. Uh, what porno movie did you talk about? Well, I uh, mainly spoke about a favorite of mine called the Hind Lick Maneuver. That's a good movie, George. But do you think hardcore porno is the way to go? Because I feel women prefer softer porn. Senator Thurman? I agree with Senator Heffin. Yeah, that's right. The women like something with more stories and costumes. It'll transport them to another place in time. Sometimes the joke is on the witnesses. And... The rules of comedy dictate when that's the case, the legislative branch has to play it straight, as was the case in this sketch from 2021. Mr. Giuliani, I have to ask, is any of this really appropriate? Uh, sorry, what? Oh, I, um, I blacked out for a second, sir. Jesus, man, just wrap it up. In conclusion, I would say the defense rests, but we will never rest. Not until this election is overturned or I get a full pardon and $10 million in cash. And if you like what you saw here today, we're having a press conference right after this at the Ritz-Carlton Plumbing and Heating Supply Company, right off I-94 between a dirty movie theater and a crematorium. Cats not only allowed, they're required. Thank you, Mr. Giuliani. Saturday's sketch had the college president saying a few silly things, but they escaped ridicule on the actual real-world statements that were, in fact, ridiculous. Other people in the media seemed equally confused as to what wrongs transpired. Dave Rothkoff, writing under the headline, Canceling University Presidents Won't End Anti-Semitism, in the publication No Shit Quarterly, oh, no, sorry, in the Daily Beast, Rothkoff argues, here's the subhead, the right wing's latest witch hunt in academia isn't a cure for bigotry, it's a warning of creeping authoritarianism. Here's an excerpt from the essay, the pressure to fire those presidents for seeking to present appropriately nuanced answers to questions posed to them is misguided. Okay, but what about the pressure to fire them for offering horrific, overly lawyered failed evasions? when asked to simply articulate an obvious truth, because that's what actually went on. 
I don't think the president should have been fired, actually. My worries aren't primarily the ones voiced on the front page of the New York Times, anti-Semitism on campus lets the right restart a culture battle. Well, yeah, if the left is going to have wildly disparate, and I'd say hypocritical stances on who needs to be protected on campus, then, yeah, the right's probably going to take advantage. It wasn't only the right, about 70 Republican, but three Democratic senators signed a letter calling for the resignation or firing of the University of Presidents. Another dozen Democratic legislators wrote a letter saying that the speech codes on campus have to be rewritten if they don't include genocide. I mean, there was a time when a liberal wouldn't want to crack down on free speech, but would, of course, recognize that anti-Semitism is not in some different category than anti-any other group. And if you're doubting that that's the case, realize that many universities are addressing the latest uptick in anti-Semitism by establishing new centers to address anti-Semitism. That seems good, except when you ask yourself, wait, might that be an acknowledgement? that the already established and well-funded DEI centers and offices of equity are inadequate to police or crack down on anti-Semitism? As you know, I am a fierce defender of free speech. I criticize the shutdown of free speech within Israel. I've criticized on this show uh, shutting down pro-Palestinian sentiment on college campuses. I was against the censuring of Rashida Tlaib. I criticized the aspects of that business school professor Shai Davide's call for Columbia to silence pro-Palestinian rhetoric. Down the line, I've been consistent. I strongly believe this. It doesn't matter for me if a listener is upset or offended. That is not the standard of free speech. And that's all true. And that's what I believe. Oh, wait, I believe. Am I trying to evade a subpoena? But yeah, I do think And I strongly hold that conviction, but I also think that it's obvious that the president's got it wrong or else they, you know, two of the three wouldn't have issued clarifying statements, which which didn't just rephrase things with more nuance. The new statements corrected the principles they mistakenly articulated. But firing, especially in the face of some contrition over a badly botched sentence or two, I think it's almost always wrong. Now, many critics of the university will say it's not a sentence or two. It's the entire apparatus of safetyism, the promotion of a reductive, all-encompassing oppressor versus oppressed worldview. Yes, I get that. And the firing doesn't undo any of that either. It doesn't really inch the efforts along, I don't think. I think the next president of Penn will not oversee a massive overhaul away from a social justice orientation within the school's social science and humanities departments. It might feel good to claim a scalp, but we're not going to course correct via punishment and victimization. Purging enemies and yelling burn it down is what immature, radical protesters espouse. That said, I don't think that because it's some win for Republicans, we all must worry. I don't believe that campuses are going to become more authoritarian. They already seem to me to be, I don't know if you want to call it authoritarian, but very inhospitable to ideas that challenge progressive orthodoxies. And maybe they're now, after the firing, a little more inhospitable to ideas that actually threaten groups seen as posing power or privilege. It is all a pretty sad state of affairs for the institutions that are supposed to be our thought leaders. And in this case, I'm not talking about Saturday Night Live. In fact, that's kind of the problem. 
this idea of them being thought leaders. It's not that they've failed to be our thought leaders. It's that they actually are. And the process of creating those thoughts, of advancing those arguments, of engaging with the debate necessary to sharpen those thoughts, that, I worry, is irreparably broken. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And speaking of slashes, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com slash gifts. And for 11% off, Belgium. Oomperoo jeeperoo dooperoo. Thanks for listening. I am here today because hate speech has no place on college campuses. Hate speech belongs in Congress, on Elon Musk's Twitter, in private dinners with my donors, and in public speeches by my work husband, Donald Trump.